Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode five, Thor's Hammer and Fork. Last week, we talked about how Viking raids would have started, how land hunger resulting from good times, resulting from better weather than we have today, combined with ancient technology drove people, first possibly from Norway, to settle in the northern islands of Britain, and some serious raiding went along with that early settlement. And this was just the beginning of England's case of Vikings. And today we're going to welcome Dragon Slayer to the program. She's a person that everybody loves. And her major claim to fame is that she was once told Vikings aren't real. We also know that there was raiding in southern England around this time, near the year 800, but we don't have specifics. How did Europe react to this? Did they mount a crusade to help England? Did they send help or humanitarian assistance at all? Well, nothing like that happened at all. In those days, people didn't help others a couple of provinces over that way, much less in far-off countries. You know the way that we sent an aircraft carrier to help an island in Indonesia hurt by a tsunami? Or international aid quickly arrives from all over the world to less remote places with airports and disasters? It's a product of the miracle that happened that one time. You have to be rich enough to be kind and caring that way. And it was the miracle that made being rich enough possible. When you think back to early efforts in international aid, and for some reason my mind goes back to U.S. assistance to the Soviet Union in the early 20s, when the first Soviet experiments with a communist organization and methods led to a widespread famine, that wasn't a natural disaster. It was man-made, caused by Marxism. The U.S. and the parts of the West that could afford it organized relief that was rapidly effective. This was Herbert Hoover's second big famine relief operation, and Lenin learned his lesson and backed off trying communism in farming. Most, but not all, of the great famines in the 20th century were man-made. The Belgian famines in World War I, the Russian famines in the 20s, and the even worse Russian famines in the 30s. And the worst example of all is the Great Leap Forward in the 50s in China. That was the only human event in recent times to kill enough people to cause the upward trajectory of human population growth to pause for a few years. It must have killed like 30 million, though we don't know precisely. These numbers are just too big to get your mind around. Still, Amazing, stunning. The great leap forward as ideology put into practice turned China from an already poor country into one of the poorest on earth. Stupidity smart people commit again. Whereas at the time we're talking about, 800 AD, China was the richest and probably was still the richest around 1600 AD. What about the India famine in World War II? That was pretty bad. Oh, hey there, Dragon Slayer. Hey everyone, this is Dragon Slayer, a brilliant and kind young person who was once told Vikings aren't real. Bengal in World War II. Terrible. But that was a regular famine. The most you can say is that the famine relief was poor due to the war, 
and that Bengal's neighbors acted as badly as neighbors did in Viking times. It's a weirdly politicized topic today with lots of lies and distortions, so I don't want to touch it on the podcast. Back to the Soviet Union in the 20s. It was the rich parts of the world that banded together to help limit starvation. Being rich is a prerequisite to being generous in that particular international way. Before the miracle that happened that one time, there was no generosity like that. What did they do about the Vikings then? Before the miracle? Well, they mostly wrote missives to each other to express their outrage. Then, as now, outrage was a great prompt to communication. Outrage? Yeah, you know, all those social media studies that show that it isn't truth that makes stories go viral, but how it makes people feel to send the story out to others. But they didn't have social media. Well, I think they might have had Friendster. Right. But they did have feelings, and while Malcolm Muggeridge would argue persuasively that the medium used in communication had an enormous impact on shaping it, we're still hobbits, social monkeys, and thinking humans all at the same time, and always have been. So what did the brightest lights of the Viking Age write? They were outraged at Vikings. But Vikings were pagan, so what do you expect? Vikings are far outgrouped to these writers. They were way more outraged at their fellow humans, their near outgroup, for their sinfulness. Alcuin, a Briton, one of the best minds of the time and an advisor to Charlemagne, wrote that those who sacked Lindisfarne were God's instrument of wrath visited upon the sins of the people. He quoted a prophecy from Jeremiah 114 in support of this idea. It goes, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon the inhabitants of the land. Ah, Harold, there are a lot of Bible verses. You might say Bible verses for any occasion. Yeah, and that's the way we think today. But back then, they took it more seriously. This led to fear. One of their related prayers, O ferore normandorum, libro nos domine, from the fury of the Northmen, deliver us, O Lord. It was written down later, but gives the idea of fear that a horrible prophecy might be coming true. I don't want to be too dismissive of European reactions to Vikings. There were institutional responses, like local charters, where in exchange for liberties from the king, the people had to defend against Vikings and pull down any fortifications Vikings made. Charlemagne, a guy who had a lot going on, tried different solutions, various kinds of diplomacy. He also tried to settle Danish princes in Frisia and northern Germany. Wait, Frisia? Think of it as the old form of the Netherlands, and you won't be far off. Charlemagne, the French king? He was Charles the Great. That's what Charlemagne means. His capital was at Aachen, along the Rhine in modern Germany. But he was a Frankish king, and his kingdom included modern France, and eventually expanded to include Germany, Austria, Switzerland, northern Italy, and the Low Countries, even Hungary and Catalonia at times. Charlemagne, the king of most of Europe, then, couldn't stop the Vikings? Well, Charlemagne's main concerns were things like conquering the Saxons, the Saxons in Germany, not England, fighting the Moors in Spain, conquering northern Italy, fighting off Magyar invaders, getting crowned Roman emperor, all big things. He tried establishing Viking princes, famously at Dorstadt, a major market town. 
a couple of times with the idea that the best defense against Vikings that your people can't seem to effectively resist is to settle some tame Vikings on your land and have them deal with foreign Vikings. And, of course, it was Charlemagne's grandson, Charles the Simple, who made the most famous deal of settling Vikings to protect yourself from Vikings. In 911, he gave Rolf Gangar, or Rolf the Walker, because he was said to be too big to ride a horse, usually called Rollo in English, the lands west of the Seine, extending out to what was then the independent land of Brittany. And that bit of land between the Seine and Brittany became known as Normandy. And the Normans conquered Sicily. I remember that from the last episode. Southern Italy and Sicily in the uh, 1050s, but also conquered England in 1066. Did it work to give Rollo Normandy? Well, in the primary purpose it did. Vikings stopped attacking Paris and capturing their bishops, taking all the gold and silver around. But in another way, no. The Normans and the French kings were at war pretty fast. The Normans never forgot their Viking heritage. They seemed to love hosting Vikings who were going raiding farther afield in France and Spain. Also, Vikings raiding England were heavily using Normandy as a base. And given the way that Normans just seemed to love Vikings, there had to be Normans in those groups of Vikings raiding England, right up until the Viking conquest of England. Wait, Vikings conquered England? I never heard of that before. Yeah, in a future episode, maybe we'll talk about some reasons you've never heard of it. It influences the unusual way the podcast is covering the Viking Ark. And we would be jumping way ahead in our story of the early raids, but ultimately, yeah, the Vikings conquered huge amounts of land in England, settled down to farm, just as they meant to all along. And then when the Saxon overlords of England screwed up big enough in the usual stupidity, smart people commit kind of way, they got forked. Forked? Royally forked. By Svein Forkbeard, king of Denmark, who took over as king of England by conquest. Then his son Knut became king of England, and two of Knut's sons were also kings of England, until there was a pretty integrated Anglo-Scandinavian nobility running things. The last English king, Harold, had five brothers, three of which had Scandinavian names. Harold is a Norwegian name. Well, it's my name, and the current king is a Harold, and so was the very first one, Harold Fairhair. But Harold is a very old name, possibly from before there were any distinctions between English and Norse. For meaning, the first syllable har means horde, or army, and the last syllable ald means leader. So basically it means general, or king. Meaning it could have started out as a title that became a name, but that's speculation. Anyway, we know Harold was also a good old English name in 1066, as well as a Scandinavian one. The thing that interests me is that you had this leading family of England, the Godwinsons, and they gave their children a mix of English and Scandinavian names, and Harold, which was both. And it was just something people did around then. Despite the St. Bryce's Day Massacre of Danes in 1002, you had this nice integration in society. 
an interesting example of early tolerance. Massacres of Danes in peacetime? Well, the Saxon king Athelstan ordered all the Danes living in England to be massacred on this one particular day. What? That's horrible. Yeah. We don't know how extensive this massacre was, but there have been at least two mass graves found from around that time, full of bodies that died by violence, and a solid written account of Danes in Oxford taking refuge in a church and people in Oxford setting fire to the church to get at the Danes. By 1002, there were entire cities and towns that were mostly Viking, and huge areas where Scandinavians were a large minority, so the whole attempted genocide thing was never going to work. Genocide in England? Well, England had this Viking problem, and some people thought this brutal, unimaginable choice was the only way to solve the problem. I mentioned this back in episode two, that sometimes in history we get these unimaginably horrible solutions to problems when people take the problem they have too seriously and just can't think of a better solution. That's part of being human, or social monkeys maybe, and we need to watch out for it. But it seemed to backfire. Svein Forkbeard, as king of Denmark, would have been seen as someone who had to do something about it. I mentioned he became king of England by conquering England, eventually. So, there, did something. One legend has it that Forkbeard's sister was one of the victims of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. If we believe that, then the Viking conquest of England is like a Charles Bronson revenge movie, or it's like Taken, where some scumbag misses with someone who, who has a special set of skills. And the massacre probably discouraged some of the English. It made them feel in the wrong, possibly sapped resistance to Forkbeard. There was human feeling even back then. Viking leaders like Thorkel the Tall showed mercy at times. I'm sure there were English who were appalled and guilty feeling over that day. Oh, I would hope so. I just wish it were a better known event. I mean, terrible things like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, the Holocaust, Holodomor, the Killing Fields, might be like inoculations against doing terrible things like that in the future. But it can only work if we know about it. Anyway, St. Bryce's Day is in the future of our story. We're still at the dawn of the ninth century. Vikings are raiding monasteries because they must have known that's where much of the gold and silver and jewels are kept. And perhaps they are lightly defended. That argues that these Vikings had on-the-ground knowledge of the monastery, probably first-hand knowledge. And yet we have Alcuin saying, a long quote here, It's 350 years that we and our fathers have inhabited this most lovely land. And never has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. Nor was it thought possible that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Hmm. So, the Scots or Picts never raided? Or were they qualitatively different because not pagan? And why couldn't there be inroads from the sea? Did nobody know about sailing ships of the Viking style? Or is he saying it wasn't thought? possible, but it should have been. As part of his outrage about our sins, I'm so tempted to digress into the Babylonian religious stricture, which was something like pay attention, and how that relates to the Old Testament could be 
Or could that have been the source of Alcuin's outrage? A really smart person like Alcuin, steeped in the Bible as he was, maybe assuming some knowledge he thought obvious that we miss today out of ignorance, and so we're not really getting his meaning. Anyway, shortly after Norseman, quote, trampled the relics of saints into the grounds like dung in the streets in Lindisfarne, unquote, they start appearing everywhere. Charlemagne spared his personal attention to station fleets at Ghent and Bologna, eventually fleets at the mouth of the Loire and the Garonne by the end of his reign. The signs are that the Vikings were everywhere, though details are, are scarce. You get these uh, interesting little stories, like in 809, they capture someone from a papal mission in France, and they take him and ransom him in England. They start showing up in the Irish annals in 795. Probably the early raids were of relatively few Vikings. And the locals even had some success repelling attacks, like the Irish in 811 and 812 in Kerry. An attack on Frisia in 810 was paid off with just a small ransom. In 820, a Viking fleet was denied in Flanders and again up the Seine before eventually going off to plunder western France. But by the 830s, Viking attacks were bigger, like 60 ships on a raid in Ireland. In 834, and again in the next year, the large market town of Dorestad in the modern Netherlands, 80 miles, 80, 80, up the River Rhine, was sacked. Sheppey, in the Thames Estuary, the same year, Antwerp, and other towns on the Meuse, you had raids into the interior of Ireland in 836 and in the Bristol Channel. Uh, Vikings set up bases in western France to overwinter. Oh, it was good raiding there, and the locals were just not up to dealing with them. Were all these somehow connected in a way? Ordered by a king, maybe? We don't know, but we don't think so. It could be that the Vikings had more ships available. It could be that word just got out about the big score at Dorestad in 834 and everyone got all excited. Now they knew it was possible to earn a huge fortune or maybe it just became fashionable or maybe we're seeing an increase in land hunger as described in episode four. Anyway, Dorestad was hit three times in four years and Louis the Pious, son of Charlemagne, lord of all he surveyed, was pissed. He went there and ordered a great council to be held, demanding to know what is up. He had already had a fort-building program and a local fleet, and why didn't this work? The answer they came to, and we have this from the Annals of Saint-Bartin, was that it was just impossible to fight them. And we look away when we see them, and if we hear they are in the west, we sail east, that kind of thing. But this imperial attention got people focused, and there were a lot of supplies made available for coastal defenses, and they became free from Viking attacks for a few years. And that may be the reason Vikings started showing up in England in big numbers right after that. Big raids on southern England in 840, and Romney Marsh in Kent, 841, East Anglia and Suffolk, Next year, London, there's a long list of attacks in England for years. 
with the most interesting being big ones in Northumbria in 844, and the first known overwintering on the Thames in 851. But they'd been overwintering in Ireland before that, and eventually they founded Dublin as a base and trading city. Wow, Vikings found in Dublin. That's amazing. Yes, Vikings founded a lot of towns in Ireland. Dublin, Wexford, Waterford, Cork, Limerick, which became the first big towns in Ireland. They did that instead of raiding the interior generally. And it was said that if an Irish king could get some kind of tax on a Viking city, call it protection money, because in some ways government can be mafia-like, it was worth the overlordship of 20 kingdoms in the interior. The Vikings were mostly moneymakers in Ireland. Uh, Trade increases wealth, remember, usually. Unlike England, in Ireland, they just became another faction in the Irish politics of the time. The raids on France up the Seine and other rivers seemed to be the most profitable around this time. In 845, an attack on Paris was bought off by paying 7,000 pounds of silver, a staggering sum. Over the next years, all the major rivers, even the Rhone, saw Viking attacks. Oh, the Rhone River attack is a great story uh, by one of the sons of Ragnar. Because these Vikings sailed through the Straits of Gibraltar, fought moors in Spain, took cities and slaves in Morocco, overwintered in the Mediterranean for three years, sacked a city in Italy. I would love to tell that story, but it doesn't connect to the miracle. By 851, Vikings were wintering on the Seine, like they were wintering on the Thames. And it's tempting to talk more about Vikings in France. I mean, sacking Nantes, Orléans, Tours, Reding Blois, Le Mans. But we're supposed to be talking about England's case of Vikings. That's what matters to the miracle. So more on that next week, after Conversations with Cami. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> hey, Cammy, you've had a chance to listen to episode five. Uh, do you have any reaction? Well, I keep picturing in my head the uh, the sight of 60 to 80 Viking ships coming up the Seine or one of the many rivers in Europe and the number of people that would be involved with that kind of a force and the having to move their cooking elements and their food and it, it's an army. It's not just a couple of Viking ships. I didn't realize that they were in such large numbers. And what that must have looked like if you're in your little village and you see this huge flotilla of an army coming at you. Yeah, you know you'd be about to have a really bad day. That'd be frightening. Very much so. It's a matter of great controversy how big these forces are. So how many people are we talking about on one of these boats? I don't recall. Pretty much at the maximum, the average would be 60. If you had 60 ships, 60 people, you'd have uh, 3,600. I said an army. Yeah, that would be a you know pretty significant force. And the, uh, the issue that historians have is, is trying to figure out how the logistics could possibly be managed, you know, given primitive conditions, given uh, how innumerate people were thought to have been, could they have sustained very large forces for an extended period of time? Yeah, the, the numbers just amaze me in trying to coordinate that kind of a, an action of war. Yeah, well, you know, the, um, the numbers aren't 
that huge for European armies. Scandinavia would be far less populated than England and France and Germany. And so the armies the rulers would have locally would be bigger, but they might not be as ready and they might not be willing to uh, actually fight, as we saw was the case many times in England and, and France. Well, it sounds like an amazing undertaking. The Vikings were very ambitious. <laughs> very ambitious. Okay, thank you very much, Gammy. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>